my cousin and I, when we were just kids and on a family holiday on the Gold Coast. We invented a language. Or so we thought. We actually just blurted out various sounds and pretended they were words. At one point we were just saying shikala, shikala, over and over again. But one of the made-up phrases has stayed with us, now for more than 20 years. And if I were to say miff miff kark to my cousin, he would still know exactly what I meant. And recently a mate confided in me regarding an experience he'd had when he was about 18 years old. He had begun speaking in tongues. It was a strange night, he said. He'd been going to this church since he was a kid, a fairly nutty one as he now described it. But he'd always felt he was able to stay one step removed from the preacher's emotive speeches and the communal clapping and cheering, and focus on what he thought he was meant to, which was being a good person, I guess. But one night, at one of their meetings, the preacher came up to him and put his hands on my mate's shoulders and said, Now I'm going to pray for you and you will speak in tongues. My mate said his first thought was that it was a daft idea. He didn't even want to speak in tongues. He was perfectly happy with English and the little bit of German he'd learned in grade 11. But still, too awkward to say otherwise, he let that charismatic man put his hands on his shoulders and start praying in a loud oratory style that my mate would receive this strange spiritual gift. So he squeezed my shoulder, my mate said. And I started spouting off. What did I say? I don't know. Absolute nonsense, I guess. Mad shit. Gobbledygook. It felt like sparks were flying off my tongue. All the syllables that ever existed, like the ones you see in comic books. Zam, zoot, spew, wee, woo, ah. Maybe within all that there were snippets of earthly languages too. Fijian or Swahili or Danish. Off I went, with a whole lot of them, standing firm and tall, sputtering and spluttering like a lunatic the most spectacular speech no human ever understood. I was the bloody Tower of Babel, he said, trying to laugh it off. But I thought it was weird that this was what the preacher wanted for my mate, to become what God commanded people in the olden days to bulldoze, to knock down. Because as far as I remember it, that yarn goes like this. In the ancient metropolis of Babylon, some blokes started building a tower towards heaven. And gods used to get very nervous about humans clambering up into the clouds to knock them down. It had happened a few times. They were pretty good at it over in ancient Greece. So anyway, this god got their faithful elect to go to Babylon and give that tower a clobbering. And furthermore, 
the god demented these tower builders and made it so that they could communicate only in a confusion of sounds, shikala, shikala, which made them much less efficient at construction. But I guess it also broadened the possibilities of their linguistic expression, and therefore enhanced their opportunities for developing a huge array of nuance in perception. I mean, yes, there was chaos sometimes, I'm sure, there still is. For example, a friend of mine once told a group of Spanish speakers that testicles were introduced to Australia and had caused large-scale ecological problems. She'd said the word cojones, which means, you know, balls. But she wanted to say conejos, which means rabbits. So yes, chaos, confusion, but profusion too. Colour, contrast. Excitement. Poetry. So this god, insecure as they were, invented all the infinite majesty of language and foisted it upon the earth, east to west, north to south. I thought of my mate as a younger man, speech pouring out of him, saying all sorts of things, this gorgeous glossolalia, reciting ancient Confucian poetry, maybe, or giving a political speech in Gilbertese without knowing it, possibly even saying in Finnish, what will we cook on the grill and what temperature is the sauna? If only he could have held on to it, I thought. It could have been a useful gift. Perhaps he could learn to control it. But the moment passed, he told me, the mystery slipped back into the darkness. And when he came to, he was left with only English and a handful of German phrases. Yet he had tasted the delicious polyglossia of the world. I told my mate that that's how I'd try and see it if I was him. He sat there for a minute thinking, and then said, Yeah, but to be honest, I didn't need to be able to say everything. I mean, I was a young man. I could barely say anything. I used to just grunt and mumble under my breath. The real spiritual gift would have been to have unloosened my tongue so that I could tell my mum that I loved her, or explain to a therapist why I felt so sad. A single, concise sentence would have done the trick. Not all the blarney of Babel. Less is more, you know. I looked at my friend as he tentatively ventured into an account of these past experiences. He was tense. His arms crossed so that his hands clasped his forearms. His shoulders bunched up a little. His smile withheld clenching around his temples. And I realised that his body language was saying more than any amount of jabbering on could. I thought of my cousin and I ranting and raving on the Gold Coast. Shikala, shikala, miff, miff, kark. 
And in contrast, I remember the lines of the poet Byron, who wrote of a language of the eyes. The answer eloquent where the soul shines and darts in one quick glance a long reply. I live alone in a shack in the bush, an old train carriage that I've stuffed with books. These books don't just fill much of the space, but they fill most of my days. I pull them out of their imperfectly balanced, unsorted piles, poems and essays and novels, stories from all over the world. It sometimes does feel like the authors of all these works are my companions out here. For weeks at a stretch I might spend more time with them than other humans, knowing that their thoughts and ideas might inspire mine. I can come to feeling close to the authors of memoirs, the dreamers of poetry, even the characters in fiction. From a very young age I knew I liked literature. I'm not sure how it came about, but my brother and I both loved books and we'd come up with our own silly stories and characters and scribble them down, along with newspaper reports of our backyard cricket matches, curious little quizzes, rip-offs of Goosebumps or The Simpsons, and scripts for sitcoms we invented as we went along. I even played a game where I would sit on the computer and type up the rambling stream of conscious speeches my brother would give as he played Super Nintendo games. The rule was that I stopped only when he said something that I had to reply to. Then I'd read his monologue back to him. You see, we loved literature. In every imaginable genre. I wouldn't say we came from a literary household. But Mum and Dad both read. Newspapers, women's magazines, crime thrillers. Slowly I realised that this wasn't necessarily the norm. Not in Tasmania, at least. For a while now, the statistic has been that about half of all Tasmanians have inadequate document literacy skills. Which means, I gather, that although these folks may be able to read words, they find it hard work to understand complex directions or read food packaging, do their taxes, or understand the manual for their car. And they're certainly not reading for entertainment or enjoyment. I don't doubt that plenty of these folks are much more skilled than me in other fields. Maybe they don't need to read the car manual because they've become mechanics through their own hands on experience. Or instead of writing, they might be able to communicate through music, which many of us only wish we could. Our ancestors kept memories alive through songs and yarns. Literate communities seem to outsource so much of our faculty for remembering and teaching 
a fact which some of our technologies only exacerbate. And as strange as it is to say it, literacy is only a pretty recent concept in the grand scheme of things. The oldest alphabet we know about is only 5,000 odd years old, which makes it pretty recent. As strange as it is to say it, literacy is only a pretty recent concept in the grand scheme of things. The oldest alphabet we know about is only 5,000 odd years old which makes it pretty fresh. As the writer Elena Passarello puts it, language is epically younger than thought and experience. Humans are hypersocial and keen on experimentation. Writing is just one of the many techniques for communication we've trialled, one which has evolved along with many other technological advances, like the famous Gutenberg Press or the internet. Yet the romantics amongst us will wince when we learn that the earliest writing we have in the ancient Sumerian script is actually just a work of commerce, not some literary masterpiece. The Greeks called what they saw scrawled on the walls in ancient Egypt hieroglyphics, meaning sacred writing. But most of that was the accounts of palaces, economic and political archives. Some would argue that the best stories have always been told around a campfire, while gathering herbs or butchering a bison carcass, or over tankards of mead. And some will also say that's still the case in plenty of places. But when I think of a lack of literacy, I think of a housemate of mine from years ago. He confided in me that he could hardly read at all, and he was so embarrassed by his spelling that he stopped handing in schoolwork in grade nine. Shit had hit the fan with his on-again, off-again girlfriend, however, so he asked me to help him write a letter to her. As I sat at his desk, he skulked about the room, pacing and rehearsing what he'd like to say, what he'd like her to read. And I'd try and draft it out, edit it slightly, make it clearer or more concise. He was angry, this housemate of mine. Or to be more fair, I might say he was frustrated. A mass of feelings surged and raged within him. Without words, it seemed that he struggled to put them under scrutiny, so they all remained a large, vague blur within him. I kind of understood. I was well into adulthood when I realised that writing helped me elucidate my emotions. It unravelled some of the tangled sensations within me. It still amazes me how I can start to scribble in my journal and find myself suddenly making sense of my circumstances, as if some logic behind it flowed in a linear motion like the ink from my pen. And literature has certainly helped me learn how to put language to my inner life, to understand some of its nuances and subtleties, and in so doing, It's helped me shape myself into someone more like who I think I want to be. The words themselves are just sounds. Random vocalisations. Blurts and yelps. The yapping of animals. But they are capsules of exceptional meaning. Remember that the first alphabets were to do with taxes, expenditure, laws, debts. 
as it's been put by one expert on the ancient world of Eurasia. Writing became a means of controlling society. Writing adds authority to language. At its best, literature of whatever kind allows wisdom to travel. It upholds the stories of the world, makes them available to a broad audience across space and time. At its worst, it's used to manipulate and control. We see that everywhere. And the least skilled with language are often the most susceptible to bald-faced lies, brazen politics, dodgy marketing, shit-house journalism. Those with better literacy are at least equipped to track down different versions of the stories they hear, to pull apart news reports, to delve into scientific articles, to learn various histories, to call bullshit on writing done in bad faith. Above all, the written word brings me a great amount of pleasure. Here I am on my own in the bush, but also surrounded by countless companions whom I do not take for granted, reaching as they are across vast distances. Every day I find myself in the presence of an array of different individuals. An asylum seeker from Kurdistan, for instance. Or a Hungarian landowner caught in changing borders during World War II. Or an ancient philosopher from the Mediterranean. A marine scientist who's just resurfaced from the Mariana Trench. I too ponder the poetic thoughts of an Irishman in the Troubles. A medieval Chinese traveller. Or an old lady in Poland. And I can enjoy the fabulous fruits of the imagination of fiction writers from all around the world. From today, or yesterday, or centuries ago. They share my shack with me. They don't chip in with the rent, but they are generous with their friendship. And instead of being frustrated that I can't find the words, I'm thrilled to have them all around me. Even in the state of chaos that my locomotive library invariably is. Honk, oink, snip, meow, splash. I feel like onomatopoeia was one of the first linguistic techniques I was ever formally taught in a childhood more or less devoid of grammatical instruction. Might have been one of the first six-syllable words I learned as well. Such a long term for kid-friendly little words. The simple sounds that are surely the building blocks of language. Yet even these I later discovered weren't universal. 
I recall a mate of mine on an Italian island running around shouting Kikariku as the sun rose. We'd been partying. And she was acting like a rooster heralding the dawn. But this is not what roosters in Australia say. It struck me, though, that she might have seemed even more ridiculous if she was yelling cock-a-doodle-doo. Words generally don't spring up from nowhere. By and large, they each have some lengthy backstory behind them, an origin that goes back thousands of years, often into a different part of the world, somewhere that is not England, even if we are speaking English. The study of these origins is called etymology, and the etymological dictionary that I own is a book that I use pretty much every day. In fact, it's very easy for me to get lost wandering through the forest of all these old growth words. It fascinates me to think that much of what I say was born thousands of years ago, in Scandinavia or ancient Rome, or somewhere near the Black Sea, from where the story goes. A wave of horse-riding desperados came at some point in history, speaking a language that is imagined as the ultimate source of so many languages across Europe and Asia that scholars generalise it with the name Indo-European. Let's look at the word bee. You know, bee, the insect. One that makes honey. The dictionary I have deduces that since there are almost identical words in modern Germanic languages, like Dutch and German and Icelandic, then B is obviously a word from that northern European region. Yet that only takes us back so far. The etymologists go looking further afield and find that less closely related languages, which have branched off further back in the past, languages like Irish or Old Slavonic or Lithuanian, these also have B words that are much the same. So the history of our word B probably goes back deeper in history, before these languages separated and spread all around Europe. And just to add a bit more context, there's also a set of words, they reckon, in this dictionary, words in Old English or German, that seem similar too. But these words mean tremble or quiver. So they suggest that B is derived from this word, B, they say, might mean the quivering insect. Speculation aside, what we learn from this is that our words are overlain and interlaced with nuanced meanings that are millennia old. I love the multitude of synonyms that English has, the vast vocabulary, different names for the same thing, which is often the result of promiscuous languages intermingling over eons the side effect of migrations and mixed cultures. I feel lucky to speak a language with a swathe of dialects, idioms and accents from all around the world. Strange proverbs, ancient poems, archaic words. There's Shakespeare's careful cadence, Chaucer's grotesque comedy, and then there's cricket commentary, and the eccentric English I sometimes hear spoken in rural pubs. I once heard the most beautiful speech in my local watering hole, the poetry of a potato farmer. Ah, them fucking kinnabicks, they get fucking big if you get the water up them. The subtleties of our speech might make it difficult to learn, and I think even many Australians would have found that farmer hard to interpret, 
but it brings bounteous amounts of beauty to everyday banter as well. Of course, English is not the only language with this kind of longevity. These foibles, these countless idiosyncrasies. The speech of each person on the earth is enriched by the deep history of their words, which is shaped by past relationships and the spirit of place, as well as curious cross-cultural connections. In Tasmania, many Aboriginal people speak their own language as well as English. Palawakani. The history of Palawakani is in many ways a story that chockers with colonialism's complexities. A story that begins with a collision of cultures and with devastating violence, but which also tells us about the resilience and creativity of the descendants of those who survived the invasion and today persist in keeping culture alive even within a system that retains elements of the past's brutal legacy. There were once a handful of Tasmanian languages. After the early 1800s, the years of kidnappings and killings, the battles of the Black War, as well as the meddling of missionaries, none of these languages had survived intact. However, there were a bunch of lexicons left behind, word lists compiled by an eccentric catalogue of whitefellas. And there were large portions of living language too, mostly on the islands of Bass Strait, where the descendants of women stolen by seafarers lived in a very curious motley mob. As the Aboriginal communities in Tassie have gathered strength, they have worked at preserving cultural practices and developing some of them further. Palawakani is one aspect of this an amalgam of Tasmanian Aboriginal lingos. From what I can tell, Palawakani, then, is a synthesis, weaving strands of the pre-colonial past into living language, a reimagining of the talk of the first Tasmanians. Being able to speak your own language is a basic right, but one that was suppressed in many places across the years of colonial expansion. Countless languages were killed off in acts of abuse in various empires. It's still happening, of course. Although I'm pleased to report that there are growing numbers of speakers in some marginalised languages. Across the ditch in New Zealand, for instance, there has been a concerted effort to revitalise te reo Māori, to teach and learn the Māori tongue. And it seems that all students throughout that country are exposed to some lessons in the language. And on the British Isles, marginalised languages like Manx and Cornish are said to have been revived after being on the edge of extinction for some time. Likewise, given the circumstances, the very existence of Palawakani is potent. As one linguist says, the death of a language means the loss of long cultivated knowledge that has guided the interactions between humans and their environments for thousands of years in Tassie's case, for upwards of 40 millennia. This, then, is the loss of accumulated wisdom and observations of generations of people about the natural world, plants, animals, weather, soil, to use the words of that same writer again. I often see it as a bushwalker in Tasmania. I notice how I don't have a specific word for the tunnels in the scrub made by paddy melons, 
or wombat tracks, for what cockatoos do to rotten eucalyptus wood, or the way wind prunes trees on the plateau, or names for most of our mushrooms, for that matter, and the way so many of our creatures are given a blend of borrowed names, Myrtle Beach, Grey Shrike Thrush, Tasmanian Devil, Perhaps Palawakani can address some of these shortages. But I must say here, it is not my language. Unlike in New Zealand, where the Māori language is taught widely and frequently used by people of all backgrounds, Palawakani is generally only to be used by Tasmanian Aboriginal people. I've been taught some vocabulary along the way, and retain some words from when I've read or heard the language in public forums. And I notice that this is often lingo that fits local ecology. When I see Dixonia antarctica, the beautiful Tassie tree fern, I almost invariably think of it in the Palawakani word. I just think it's a more fitting and lovely word. But I appreciate that it isn't mine to share. So I don't broadcast it. I don't write it down. Cautiously, I keep the word within me. I kind of like that on this island there is a secret language, reserved for a minority. It's the inverse to the attitude of Western science, where knowledge ought to be democratic, ubiquitous, everything available to everyone. That's my tradition, and I also don't mind that, to be honest. But it's useful, I think, to come up against a cultural barrier, to have to accept limitations, to not need to hoard every word and claim it as my own. Maybe in time our Aboriginal languages will become more and more a part of a more broadly shared Tassie culture, as it is in New Zealand and elsewhere. That seems to be the essence of languages. They are porous. They are ready to be reshaped. They are gregariously sharing. That's what you can see in the etymological dictionaries. You can also just recognise it in the slow metamorphoses of how we learn slang, the way we speak amongst different people. Language is by nature communal. That can't be helped. Although we can still be careful with how we talk and who we borrow from. Now I respect the wishes of Aboriginal communities to keep cultural skills and secrets for themselves. The point, as I understand it, is that the colonial mindset tends to take everything for itself. It is impatient, demanding, possessive. And I can see why you'd be pissed off if you survived everything and managed to rebuild a language and then had it swiftly pinched from you by happy-go-lucky whitefellas. Seems we might need to earn the trust of Aboriginal communities if we want to use some of their words. But it would be a generous gift, helping contrasting cultural beliefs entwine, to cultivate a shared point of view of aspects of the island. For I have noticed that without words, humans can find it hard to care about the world around them. 
This is perhaps the main reason why I have scrounged so long and hard for language about the bush that surrounds me. I need to understand where I am. Even if I am desperately making up the words to describe it all as I go along. In the work of the Persian poet Omar Khayyam, there's a solitary dove whose lawn and lonely cooing is interpreted as the bird asking after its lost partner. Koo, after all, is the Farsi word for where. For Omar, interpreting bird calls was easy. So why do the writers in my collection of ornithological guides have such a hard time translating the speech of birds in the Australian bush? Of course I'm being unfair. How can you transliterate the euphoric songs, random shrieks and raucous squawks of our diverse bird life? They have to give it a go, I suppose. These compilers of bird-watching guides... And sometimes it helps to identify a flapping bundle of feathers as it flashes past you, crying wildly. But this morning I was watching a yellow-throated honeyeater picking at the bark of the eucalypts. It must be starting to make a nest. And I wondered, was it really, as Slater's field guide suggests, saying tonk, tonk? And furthermore, What would Omar Khayyam say that that meant? Songbirds, it turns out, have brains like ours in that they learn vocal sounds. In the same way that we pick up noises in the critical period of childhood, mimicking and practicing them till we get them right and understand them as words. Young birds copy the songs of their elders gradually perfecting them as their brain develops. They're able to perceive these sounds, process their meanings, and respond accordingly. Which proves that they've got a complex auditory system, hooked up to their own intricate brains, just as we, as kids, learn speech with roughly these same mechanisms. Whales and dolphins also speak and sing. Their array of clicks, whistles, grunts, groans, snorts, barks, their beautiful music. All of these are used to chat about certain situations. And even as some biologists have put it, to communicate about sensation. So you might say that they're sharing their feelings. Dogs, cats... 
horses, possums, devils, even insects. Every habitat on earth seems to brim with the speech of innumerable creatures. A parliament in the truest sense, remembering that the etymology of that word is shared with the French verb parler, to speak. People debate just how much we can say that these vocalisations can be called language. Whether there's any sophisticated grammar behind it or whether they're just innate impulses in these animals. In discussions like this, I tend to play the Tassie Devil's advocate, so to speak. Mostly, in the dominant scientific tradition at least, the presumption has been to dismiss the intelligence of animals other than ourselves. But it seems to me that each round of research suggests other critters are smarter. But it seems to me that each round of research suggests that other critters are smarter, more complicated, and much more interesting than we've previously expected. The mystery of these other animals seems to know no end, and I increasingly think that we might be better off erring on the side of generosity or enthusiasm, or naivety as the case may be. We may well say that birds and whales and dragonflies share a social life that is rich, intricate and exciting, and even more intriguing, completely different to us. There's this great book by an Australian author, Laura Jean McKay, called The Animals in That Country. It's sort of sci-fi nature writing. And in its plot, some superbug goes around. And a symptom of infection is enhanced communication between humans and non-human animals. So dingoes and quolls and dolphins and cicadas are all yapping on. And the author's clever ploy is to make the speech of other creatures come out like a bad Google Translate jobby. Which points out that language is a two-way street and suggests perhaps we would need to improve at our end if we want to talk to the animals. Although the animals in that country also hints that human happiness and sanity depends, at least in part, on not being able to understand the countless languages in the landscapes around us. This winter I was working on the Tasman Peninsula with a guide named Gus. A great bloke, a one-of-a-kind sort of fella, doing his own thing, pretty committed to crafting relationships based on kindness with whatever creatures he comes across. Even with me. There were plenty of birds about, and one day Gus turned to me and asked, Do you think they miss us? He said he thought that in the past, in Tassie and perhaps throughout the world, Humans were more inclined to talk back to other animals. We were equally loquacious and keen to interact. We discussed this a little further. You see, there is reason to believe that early human speech was borrowed from songbirds. And when I thought more about it, I was convinced that there would have once been a great deal more banter between us and the birds. We've since separated ourselves. For some reason. So perhaps the birds do wonder why we now give them the silent treatment. 
our folklore is full of horses and lions and kangaroos who we've counted as teachers and friends and allies. And it feels like the mythologies of every culture often centre on connections we've had with other creatures in the past. So maybe the birds also have tales about how we humans previously shared our lives more freely with the species around us. And maybe they have legends as to what caused the rifts between us too. This might seem far-fetched. But the truth is, we just don't know. We haven't quite honed our instruments enough to say what's going on with all this communication around us. It's like we're just learning how to listen again. To hold up our end of the bargain. One afternoon as we came into camp, Gus started talking back to the currawongs, those fabulous noisy corvids which have a complete set of curious calls. And suddenly as Gus yacked with them, the currawongs swarmed over us, a great garrulous throng calling frantically and swooping between the branches, following us as we climbed some switchbacks onto the ridgeline where we'd pull up stumps for the night. There were about a hundred of them and the forest filled with their eccentric chatter. It felt like we could share something with them. We just had to work out how. But usually, with the birds here at the train, I just hear them out. Mostly because I talk too much in other areas of my life, and I don't want to risk frightening off my avian mates as sometimes happens with my human friends. It'd probably start off fine and then I'd wind up in a drunken barney with a kookaburra over politics. But sometimes I see if I can echo their calls, join in with a phrase of their songs, chat back, just to see how they react. Today I did respond to the yellow-throated honey-eater. Tonk, tonk, I said. And he looked at me as if he was perplexed and then carried on gathering materials for the nest. But other birds seemed more curious. The fairy wrens, the green rosellas, the whistling dicks. A few times they've even popped into the shack, perched on a pile of books and paused like they have wanted to talk. So maybe it is possible. Maybe they really do miss us.
a couple years back, I found myself suddenly unemployed. Possibly broke. And with heaps of beautiful free time. I suppose lots of people were in the same boat. And many of us took the opportunity to try a new hobby. Something cheap and close by. To fill in the impromptu void of empty hours. We took to developing useful skills. Doing domestic things for which we'd always been too busy. Some of us got into knitting and darning. Others cooking, baking. Making blackberry wine. Some strummed ukuleles or picked up the clarinet for the first time in years. Or sat at a computer producing techno beats. Or rehearsed their karaoke routine. I started trying to learn Albanian. You see, a couple of weeks earlier I'd been to the big smoke and come home with a giant backpack full of second-hand books, a library which I'd smuggled home on the boat. And among my purchases was a Fjallor Praktik English skip, an English-Albanian dictionary, a dollar in the Vinnies on Sydney Road. I didn't know if I'd ever really use it, but it only cost a buck. And it's never a bad thing to have another language's dictionary around. And then it was announced that all my gigs were cancelled, the pubs were closed and the national parks were off-limit as well. And I thought, there will never be a better time to learn Albanian. I mean, maybe there will. Because from a dictionary you can only really learn vocabulary, a few phrases at best. But it was a start. Every day I would choose 20 or so words I wanted to learn. I'd scribble them out, and the following day I would test my memory on those words. Then I'd select the next bunch for my eccentric lexicon. I went in first of all for poetic or ecological language. Later I'd add a few more practical terms and sayings. Lule, by the way, is flower. Henne is moon. Ilber is rainbow, Krimb is worm, Dimni is winter. Siestokoha, what is the weather like? Donia Cafe, do you want a coffee? My pronunciation may be an issue, because I was here on my own in the train, muttering these words without anyone to test against, let alone an actual Albanian speaker. The dictionary had a pretty ordinary pronunciation guide, and who knew even if it was telling the truth. But I figured it'd be worthwhile just giving it my best guess, because it wasn't like I had much else to do. As far as I knew, I may never get the chance to speak to an Albanian ever again, and in that case, what did it matter how my pronunciation was? I should say that I'd actually been to Albania for a week or so, some years earlier. And I'd learned a little of their language there, but not much more than thank you, sorry, cheers. I'd like a big glass of draft beer, please. That sort of thing. Water, beach, for sale, which I learned because it was painted everywhere in this one weird little half-built resort town on the south coast. 
and that word was shitet, which is kind of memorable. I also thought I'd learned a good phrase for when I had to go into a stationery store to buy a notebook. I looked at an online translator before I went, which suggested that I ought to ask for a flitare visitemi. But when I asked for a flitare visitemi in the stationery store, the staff looked at me with utter incomprehension. In desperation there, I decided to turn to Greek, the language of Albania's neighbours, so many Albanians speak it. And you know, I had a bit more Greek under my belt than I did Albanian. Although unfortunately it was mostly from a kind of 1920s folk music tradition, so it was full of anachronisms and phrases specific to the experiences of those who lived in the harbourside slums a century ago, as well as sentences like, Your eyelashes shine like lilies in the valley which doesn't get you far in a stationery store. In the end, the item I wound up with was not really what I was looking for, but I don't suppose I deserved any better. Now, though, now I would surely be better served. Now, though, now I would surely be better served. I have that dictionary, and recently in an op shop I picked up another little phrase book, which contains key sentences in 25 different languages, from Norwegian to Arabic to Esperanto. And Albanian's in there too. Admittedly, this book was published in the 1930s, so some of the sentences are a little outdated here as well. Chambermaid, where is the key of my room? Please prepare me a hot bath and bring some soap. There is no towel. Still, Someday I'll find use for some of these sayings, surely. Another large glass of dark beer and a cup of white coffee, iced, to your health. I guess we learn a bit about ourselves when we start to learn a language from scratch. Once in a different country altogether, I met a young man who could haggle fluently in the local lingo, but hadn't yet learned how to say excuse me. He was a real shit, and stingy as buggery. Meanwhile, in the highlands of Guatemala, I spouted a line of Pablo Neruda to a bloke grazing his goats. And in Iceland, I walked drunkenly through a fishing village singing about one beautiful summer in a blue landscape. I know the names of Japanese mountain flora, but the only thing I worked out how to say in the city was, where is the library? And should I ever again wander in the ancient landscapes of Albania, I imagine I'll speak with the same strange tongue. Flamboyant. Delicate. A little drunk. And quite incomplete. But the other day in a magazine online, I found some translations of Albanian poetry. Such poets write from a rugged country, a land which has given rise to many troubled stories. The words seem drawn from the dark folds of the mountains. And although I know their seasons are the opposite of ours, a line catches my eye. I think to keep it close as the planet spins a little further, to use it like a protective amulet. Spring kills solitude with solitude. Imagination is the sap that shields you from your body.
This is the sort of language I want in my mind. The kind of speech that might help me connect with people from a different part of the world. Although I guess it would be strange to murmur this to somebody I've met by chance in the mountains. You know, without knowing how to ask their name. And what if they said something poetic in response? I'd need a notebook to write it down. So I still should figure out how to ask for one of those. Yet when I look on the internet now, the same automated translator says that flitare visitemi actually means we are drawn together. Which is poetic, but probably still won't help in a stationery store. I might just stick with my nearly 100-year-old phrasebook and say Mabini nishishye tvogl And think how exciting it is that soon I'll be able to say this in 25 different languages. Bring me a small flask of brandy. One of the most beautiful phrases in any language, surely. <laughs>